This is Arab Talk on KPOO San Francisco, 89.5 FM. This is Arab Talk with Justin Jamal. I'm Jessan Nam. And this is Jamal Dejani. And uh, we're reporting again and doing Arab Talk radio again from our quarantine locations in Northern California in order to continue to honor the the recommendations of the uh, state of California and the CDC. Jamal and I remain on strict uh, self-quarantine at this time, but we're committed to bringing Arab Talk to our listeners. And um, we're going to continue forward, Jamal, because this situation, despite what you're hearing from the White House, which in my opinion continues to be very dangerous and very kind of reckless, I'm using that word a lot, because we're all very concerned about what's going to be happening in the future. The talk of reopening the economy and reopening things, quote, back to life at this time continues to be, in my opinion, a very reckless uh, endeavor. We're going to be talking about that today. We're going to be talking about the new normal, whatever that looks like, because in my opinion, Jamal, the concept of returning to normality is a kind of force us, will force us to rethink the entirety of our way of socializing, of being in the world, of engaging with each other. Because the news that I want to let our listeners know, this coronavirus isn't going to go away. And even if we get a vaccine, which in, in my mind is really the most important thing, even when we do get a vaccine and we all get vaccinated, the coronavirus, whether it's a common coronavirus or a novel coronavirus, it's going to be with us for a very long time. We're going to be susceptible to these kinds of infections and pandemic-like exposures for the foreseeable future. So I feel like our obligation on Arab Talk is to put all that out there, engage in a discussion, put it into the larger political context, and hopefully talk a little bit about how that relates to what's going on in the Middle East. That's right. Uh, Jess, I have a, a lot of questions to ask you about this and to ask you about what is the, the new normal and to ask you about uh, the new tests that they have been using, like the new Abbott test that gives you results in 15 minutes. And we will be discussing many of these things, just a, a few updates for our listeners now the global cases are 2.1 million globally uh, around the world with uh, 141,000 deaths. And unfortunately, in the United States, we have 64, uh, 641,000 cases with uh, 31,000 cases of deaths. And as you've mentioned, uh, I mean, the news here in the United States are very, uh, for obvious reasons, they are very uh, U.S.-centric. And we uh, want to bring other voices. We want to bring global voices, uh, mostly from the Middle East and other uh, Middle Eastern communities from, from around the globe uh, to discuss uh, what's going on there. Also talk about the Arab American community, uh, which I'll come back to that because I've been researching that we don't have a lot of uh, reports about what's happening to the Arab American community in the mainstream media except, you know, we find out about things from social media or through friends, like people who have been affected. We know that doctors who have been fighting the coronavirus in, the, in New York and New Jersey, unfortunately, have, pa have passed away. 
because of this. So we we definitely need to talk about this. So our first interview, Jess, um, uh, we've uh, had uh, the honor to have this interview with the award-winning journalist and former Ferris professor at uh, Princeton University, our friend Dahoud Kutab, who we've had on this show before. And so we talked to him uh, in his shelter in place in Amman, Jordan, and people who know about Dahoud, Dahoud travels between Amman, Jordan, and Jerusalem uh, in Palestine. And so he gave us this report. So this is what Dahoud Kutab had to say. So uh, Dahoud, uh, you know, you're at Amman, Jordan. You travel, of course, between uh, uh, Jordan and, and, and Palestine. And uh, first, let's talk about what's happening in Jordan. Uh, I've checked uh, this morning. It seems that uh, at least it was reported that there are 400 cases. I don't know if, they, if the numbers are accurate or not. But how are people coping and, and what's the government doing about it? Well, the government has taken a very uh, strict and very strong uh, position. The uh, military order or defense order was established uh, mid-March, and uh, we've had six uh, orders so far. Uh, The government has put a a round-the-clock curfew almost since then, since the March 21st, actually. And uh, they're starting now to ease things, but it's been a very strict uh, army-controlled situation. And that has kept the numbers down. We, As you said, we have less than 400 cases. Um, about half of them have already been healed. So we're actually down. The curve is going down. Uh, seven deaths have happened, mostly older people with pre-existing conditions. So uh, generally, I think they've done well. Most of the public has adhered to the curfew orders. There have been a few cases here and there, but largely it has worked very well. And I've been watching like some good things happening uh, from the government, seeing uh, the the Jordanian army in certain cases bringing uh, bread and water to neighborhoods and and people helping each other in different ways. Uh, A lot of heartwarming stories coming out from there. Absolutely. Absolutely. It's been very, uh, uh, it's a perfect story. As you said, the army has actually taken on a, a social uh, role of, of helping people out. The army is not doing it uh, out of spite or out of restriction, but out of really protecting the people. So people have been very much uh, greeting and, and thanking the, the army for what it's doing. And yes, bread and water has been actually, there's been too much bread. Uh, people are actually giving away bread at, at local supermarkets. The government did an interesting thing. They allowed local supermarkets and shops to open, but they kept the big ones closed and they kept the cars closed uh, off the road. So basically, you can walk to your nearest uh, kind of 7-Eleven type store, if you will, Mm -hmm. and buy your milk and bread and eggs. And uh, and you don't need much more. I mean, you need to, to live kind of a simple life, which in a way is good. And as you said, neighbors have been helping out. Churches and mosques have been helping out. Lots of initiatives of local uh, local committees are being established to help out people. Uh, we have in Jordan 10 million population. Three million of the population are uh, refugees or people or foreign laborers who don't have actually a, a regular job and they're not on social security. So there's a lot of people who need help. 
almost all the taxi drivers are self-employed and they are totally without any income. So there is a number of uh, sectors of society that are really hurting by this. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, people have all to, to learn how to, to live with less and uh, learn when they go shopping that to stay uh, distancing from each other. Uh, there's a lot of hand washing that is being taught <laughs> and learned. And, and um, you know, basic hygiene issues are, are learned. And the army and the government move very fast whenever there is a discovery of, of a, a family or building that has infection, they really close it off and mm-hmm. then they test everybody and they make sure everybody is, uh, is safe before they can go back. In the beginning, they opened up the four and five star hotels where people coming in in airplanes basically were taking forced the quarantine. My daughter was one of them. She came back from Princeton and they took her right to the Dead Sea and she stayed in a room overlooking the, the, the pool, but they, she couldn't get out of the room. <laughs> it, was, it was quite difficult. But anyway, it was, uh, it was welcome because the government really went out of their way. And a lot of businesses have been contributing uh, money, and there's been different funds that have established. Tens of millions of dollars in JDs have been um, put aside by big companies, banks, and so on. And individuals, you can you can donate as much as one dollar on on online now. Seventy um, percent of students are studying online. Uh, many companies, my my company included. I've uh, been doing. I have been working out of home for the last thirty days, and I haven't had to go out uh, much for anything except to buy bread and milk and things like that. So things are not good economically, but I think there have been some remedy to the big problems. I I forgot to wish you uh, when we started uh, Happy Easter, and 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 this is something. I mean, we we're, we're all kind of like. Uh, have our, uh, we all miss celebrating holidays and i was worried about uh, you know people across the globe especially in the middle east jerusalem wherever where people go to churches and especially in in jerusalem and in jordan celebrate easter so how how was that done the big problem of course is going to be uh, the the passion week in jerusalem as you said because yeah. it's very physical the, the you know the, the, the via della rosa the people, the walk of the cross, and uh, the washing of the feet, the the uh, the different celebrations, and then the uh, the holy fire that comes mm-hmm. out of the holy sepulcher. So yeah. you cannot do that virtually. Talking about Jerusalem, uh, I, I uh, what's your impression uh, on what's going on in Palestine? In Palestine, I, again, I've checked today. They say they are they have about. 300 cases, uh, but then uh, people have been complaining. There is a, they feel that maybe the, the numbers are too low because we've recently witnessed a spiking in the Jerusalem neighborhoods like of Sur Bahir and Silwan. Any updates on this? Well, uh, there's two things here, Jamal. I mean, there's uh, the big problems are actually uh, Gaza and Jerusalem because uh, they are uh, communities that are not easily regulated, very densely populated areas. And, and so the fear that once the, the pandemic reaches these places, it'll be very hard to control it. Uh, so far, it seems that Gaza has had very few cases and they seem to have isolated them. But as you said, there is very few testing going on. And so unless people are are actually having the symptoms, you don't know uh, what is happening. The uh, second problem is that a lot of the workers who work, there's about 70,000 Palestinians from the West Bank and East Jerusalem who work in Israel, 
and Israel had a very high number of of, of uh, people who have the uh, who have the corona, and so uh, during the the Jewish Passover holiday, they all returned, and uh, there was an attempt to try to control that, and then it was uh, the Israelis were not very cooperative, so people were coming in uncontrolled, and they were trying to isolate or at least test them or make sure they don't have the symptoms. So that is a problem. But I would say that Jerusalem is the biggest problem because um, it is the kind of forgotten area, East Jerusalem specifically, because the Israelis paid very little attention to the situation in Jerusalem uh, on the Arab side of the city. And uh, the Palestinian government has not been allowed to work there. And the few efforts by the Palestinian officials who live in Jerusalem have been thwarted by the Israelis who arrested the uh, uh, the officials saying you're trying to use the pandemic to, you know, for political gains. And they actually literally intimidated him, beating him up and forcing him to wear a mask with blood on them. And it was quite, uh, quite nasty what they did to uh, Mr. Uh, Fadil Hidmi, the uh, mm-hmm. Palestinian minister for Jerusalem affairs. And also Adnan Raith was also arrested. So the Israelis have not been cooperating or allowing the Palestinian government to work. And as a result, in a, again, in an ironic way, the Israelis have helped to create local committees that we used to have in the Intifada days, you remember, uh, Jamal. Mm-hmm. Now there's, uh, there's, a, there's a local committee that are being established. There's the alliance of uh, the Jammu uh, al-Maqdasi, a Jerusalem alliance of about 71 uh, NGOs that are working with the WHO and with the Jerusalem hospitals to come up with a plan, and they've made a, quite a good plan. They've uh, designed, designated hotels to become a quarantine uh, hotels. One is for the doctors who work in the who work who come from the other West Bank cities, and instead of them going back every day, they decide to keep them in Jerusalem for their own protection, so they don't have to go across checkpoints every day and so on. And they're uh, trying to raise money. At the hospitals need about seven million dollars. Uh, to buy the ventilators and the um, personal protective uh, equipment. And so um, they have, uh, I think they've raised about $3 million already. So that's quite good. They still need some more. And I'll call your audience if they're interested to support the hospitals in Jerusalem. And uh, there is attempts to create a lot of awareness. The big issue is awareness. The more people Mm -hmm. are aware, stay home, clean, wash their hands, stay out of big groups, I think that's the best kind of uh, protection against this pandemic. And there was a story uh, that Israel, of course, uh, I should mention Israel has 11,000 cases as of today, uh, that they've been uh, procuring uh, medical equipment, uh, uh, utilizing the Mossad, basically. Uh, There was a story about how they've been getting that. And uh, And they got some uh, bad equipment also. (laughs) They got got some bad equipment. Testing results that were bad. Uh, They, unfortunately, the Israelis have politicized this issue, especially in um, their relationship with Gaza. They're trying to uh, blackmail the uh, Gaza population by saying, we will give you the ventilators if you release uh, information about uh, the uh, some of the uh, Israeli soldiers that were held by uh, during the, the conflict, and uh, apparently there's some kind of a discussion about prisoner exchange. So you know it's it's quite interesting, but in a way sad that uh, this pandemic is used for political reasons, whether it's with the Palestinians or even in the Israeli government establishment itself. There's a lot of politicization of this issue. Thank you, Dahoud. Uh...
and stay safe and and healthy and uh, hopefully we can talk uh, during better times. I my my best to you and your family, Jamal, and everybody who's listening and watching us. I hope things are are better in the next time we talk. Have a good day. You too. Thanks. All right. You've been listening to the voice of Dahoud Kutab, uh, international uh, journalist uh, from uh, his quarantine location in Amman, Jordan. Dahoud has been um, a regular here on Arab Talk. We value his opinion. He goes back and forth between Jordan and Palestine on a regular basis. And I think, Jamal, his insight and his perspective are really kind of eye-opening to us to hear about some of these things from the Arab world perspective. I know we've been focusing more on kind of the local perspective here in Northern California in the United States, but uh, this is affecting everybody uh, all over the world, obviously, and we don't hear a lot about what's been happening in the Arab world. Well, what what I got from him, uh, you know, number one, that uh, in Jordan, they're trying to do the best they can do and to prevent people from coming out. And the government has been very cooperative and people have been cooperative with the exception of few cases. And it's very scary there because the economy uh, is devastated and has been devastated for a while because they have high unemployment rate in Jordan. And then with this, I mean, Jordan, as you know, is dependent on international financial aid, especially from the United States and the EU. So I don't know how, uh, you know, if uh, they're going to receive enough, especially now the entire world is going into a recession. So that's going to be a big question. The other thing is just is which we reported on this is now we're seeing what's going on, you know, how far Israel is going to push the occupation and exactly. the apartheid uh, regime conditions. Exactly. And, and, the, and, and the biggest example of this if what, if, is what, what's going on with Jerusalem. And Israel claims that Jerusalem is its, its eternal capital, that it is a united city. Yes, uh, and yeah, I mean, yet it basically it, it distinguishes and differentiates between Palestinians who mostly live in East Jerusalem and, and, and Jewish Israelis who live in West Jerusalem. So what they have been doing, they have not been doing anything to help uh, Jerusalemites in, in, uh, in East Jerusalem. Uh, very little is going as far as to, their, to, uh, to assist their hospitals. And as Dahoud Kutab was saying, and when Palestinians try to organize and try to open clinics to test people, the Israelis shut them down. That's exa- so, that's right, Jamal. And we need to call it what it is. It's medical occupation. It's medical oppression. And it's using the medical system and access to health care as a tool of the occupation and as a tool to oppress and further the ethnic cleansing of, of Palestinians in Jerusalem, Jamal. I find it so disturbing that despite the fact that uh, Palestinians living in Jerusalem pay into a system to have access to health care and uh, are supposed to get the same access as, you know, everybody else are being denied this access and being uh, denied the opportunities to protect themselves 
from this no-borders coronavirus. Even though the Israelis can build a wall, Jamal, the wall doesn't keep out the coronavirus. And so I, I consider the use of uh, medical occupation and, and, and kind of denying people the access to medical care a particularly morally bankrupt um, aspect of the Israeli occupation and how it's being uh, carried out in Palestine right now. It's really so objectionable, it's hard to put words to it. So, so although the numbers have been relatively low when you compare it to other parts of right, the world, right? Uh, in Palestine, because we, we talked about it, Palestinians are very cognizant about the situation, uh, and they are uh, they believe in science and they rely on doctors. However, we've been seeing a spike in the numbers in certain neighborhoods of Jerusalem, like Silwan, where right. Right. Silwan, as we know, has been taken over, or almost one quarter of it has been taken over by Israeli settlers, very, um, you know, uh, ultra-right Israeli settlers that have taken a lot of many of the homes. So, uh, not surprisingly, the numbers of Palestinians infected in Jerusalem are in Silwan, the largest yeah. number. Right. So, and other areas also where they have into contact with Israelis directly or indirectly, like in Sur Baher. And, and that's very dangerous because these Palestinians who live, live in Silwan, they don't go to West Jerusalem to do their shopping. That's right. They go to East Jerusalem. They go to the old city. So even with the with the minimized traffic and people going out, they still have to go buy bread and milk and meat and whatever from, from the store. So now I'm really concerned. I'm, I've been very concerned after I saw, I think in one day, they had like 10 or 12 new cases in one day when they had zero. Okay. So I'm really concerned that these people who live in these areas are going to come into contact and spread more uh, of the pandemic in in Jerusalem, especially in the old city. And we talked about how the old city is very crowded and has narrow streets. And, and right. if something like this happens, right. it will be a very dangerous situation. Well, Jamal, yeah. I, sh I share, I, I really do share your concern because um, if it gets into the old city, and if it gets into East Jerusalem, if it gets anywhere in that vicinity and they get to any point close to a tipping point where more and more people are going to get infected, it could have disastrous consequences. And this is where the Israeli uh, use of medical oppression and occupation is going to come back to haunt them and they better get their act together because the virus knows no borders. So if this uh, COVID-19 gets into the old city, it's going to infect a lot of Palestinians, unfortunately, but it will also affect a lot of Israelis. And so they need to get their act together. They need to um, make sure and guarantee that access to care, access to testing, which is really the key here, um, is universal. It's, it's part of the occupying power's responsibility, as we know, Jamal, to provide these services, even though for over 70 years they've been reneging on their uh, uh, legal and moral obligation to take care of the occupied uh, Palestinian uh, state. So I, I'm, I'm, I share your concern. I think, you know, time will tell. An increase from zero to 12 in Palestine, if you were to do the numbers and compare it to the United States or New York or San Francisco, that is a big, big 
jump, Jamal. So we have to be very concerned about it. Yes. And then the other, of course, part about how Israel uses, uh, you know, basically, uh, uh, you know, control over uh, almost two million Palestinians living in the Gaza Strip, just when it comes to food, when it comes to power, when it comes to electricity, when it comes to travel. And now with this, and even though we know that the numbers in Gaza are low, what do you think the ramification would be, God forbid, if something, if the pand- pandemic seriously spreads in Gaza? With is with, with, with it's going to be like we talk about the infection rate in prisons in the United States. Multiply that by what, a hundred, two hundred? That's exactly right, Jamal. And I've been working uh, from my remote locations with my colleagues in Gaza right now, thinking through and working on various things that can be done within the context of a brutal blockade that the Israelis have been, um, you know, engaged with Gaza for, you know, 15 years now. There is an economic blockade, there is a medical blockade, there is a food blockade. I mean, Gaza, as we've been saying multiple times here, is an open-air prison. So, with the amount of cases that are happening in Gaza right now that we're hearing about and that I'm hearing about, um, at this point, we need to be concerned, but we don't have to, uh, you know, kind of ring the bell uh, with uh, extreme urgency right now, because not to anything that the Israelis are doing, but the Palestinians, uh, as as you said before, and it's a true statement, uh, believe in science listen to their doctors, listen to this, listen to the WHO, and have been self-quarantining in really, really important ways. If, as you suggest, that the virus does get out into the larger community in the Gaza Strip, Jamal, it will have a catastrophic impact on Palestinians living in Gaza. Because it's among the most densely populated areas on the planet, number one, Access to medical care is severely limited because of the occupation. There's just a handful of ventilators. They don't have the medicines required to keep a person on a ventilator for an extended period of time. So I fear every single day when I get up in the morning and I check the situation in Gaza, I fear that the situation could spiral out of control. It's a it's a very dangerous situation, and we're going to monitor it very carefully here on Arab Talk, obviously. But right now, it looks like the situation is relatively stable. Um, you know, we'll continue to monitor the situation. But you're right. If you look at what happens in Rikers Island, if you look at what's happening in various prisons in the United States, once one or two people get infected, you know, it spreads like a mass contagion even faster in prisons than it does, you know, um, uh, anywhere else. Actually, another analogy, Jamal, would be the rehabilitation facilities and senior living facilities here in the United States. Mm-hmm. And this is being underreported right now. The number of older right. adults who are living in senior living facilities or skilled nursing facilities, the numbers of older adults that are dying from COVID-related diseases or COVID themselves is astronomical right now. And we won't even be we won't even know the full extent of it for many, many months, Jamal, because th- these are uh, horrific and catastrophic uh, places of infection that get no services. And by the time 
um, you know, the ambulance gets to a senior nerve, uh, senior uh, living facility, it's frequently too late. And these are the people who are the most vulnerable. So the, the senior living facilities, I think, is another model to think about, God forbid, anything like an infection pandemic spreading in Gaza. You're listening to Arab Talk on KPOO San Francisco 89.5 FM. So just I want to now go uh, back a little bit to the most recent news right here. And every day I'm like, uh, like our jaws drop every time we listen to Donald Trump or every time we watch uh, one of his new actions talking about Gaza. Gaza was dependent for many, many, many years on the United Nations, the UNRWA. And the United States, as you know, has cut funding to the UNRWA and other uh, UN organizations. So they are getting a fraction of the support they, that they were getting before. And now Donald Trump uh, says that he won't be, uh, he would be cutting funding to the World Health Organization. So this is, uh, you know, something, something new that, um, you know, we hear about... All Unbelievable. Sudden, Unbelievable, and, Jamal. And, and, and if we talk about this pandemic as a global crisis, you're just like going after a, the, you know, I don't know if it's the only organization or it the is. largest organization. It's okay, the only so, organization. So basically, I mean, <laughs> I don't know what to say. I mean... Well, here's, uh, what, I, here, here's what I can say. The editor of The Lancet was interviewed on the BBC yesterday and asked about the same thing. And I think his answer will be the same as my answer. If affecting, if deliberately impairing the health and wellness of a, a large number of people is a crime against humanity, then defunding the WHO by Donald Trump can be considered a crime against humanity. And that's what the editor uh, of the of the Lancet, the most prestigious medical uh, journal in the UK and arguably in the world, uh, said on an interview with the BBC yesterday. I mean, the WHO is responsible for coordinating Jamal the global pandemic of the COVID nineteen. They are responsible, and not just for COVID, but for all pandemics, and not just for viruses, but for bacterial infections, and not just for bacterial infections, but they're the central clearinghouse that organizes policy for the health and welfare of the entire globe. And the United States is the largest contributor. They contribute up to $400 million a year to the WHO. And by the way, it should be noted, the United States hasn't been paying its share to the WHO for many years now. So they're in arrears quite a bit. Defunding the WHO at right, right now um, is a crime against humanity, in my opinion, because it, 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 and this is what the head of the WHO said yesterday. It was a very, very tragic thing that he said, uh, Dr. Tadros said. When there are divisions in the world community against this war, uh, against the COVID-19 uh, virus. When there are divisions, the virus will exploit the divisions among countries and leaders. And he's afraid, as I'm afraid, as we're all afraid, that this, this vicious act to defund the WHO could create an opportunity for even wider spread of the COVID-19 virus in places that were at this point, either stable or at least flattening the curve a little bit. So to, to call it a political move, I guess, diminishes Jamal. 
the the kind of gravity of the decision. I do believe it's a crime against humanity because it's going to affect the entire globe. He wants to start blaming the WHO for his ineffectual decision making. He knew right. he knew as early as November that there were concerns. He knew even more forcefully in January of the potential catastrophic effects of the pandemic. And he knew it in February and did nothing for a month. Basically, Jamal, we lost a month in the United States where he could have really put the brakes on things and really held back what the CDC and and WHO wanted to do. And he wasn't listening to Dr. Fauci and the leaders at the CDC. He really... I don't think he he still listens to them because he wants to open the three-star the economy like uh, beginning of May. Yeah, so let me just say this really quick because I want to make sure our listeners get this. If the economy is open too soon and people go back to normal, that the risk of reinfection raises, uh, increases dramatically, substantially, and that you get new populations that will be exposed to the virus. You'll get secondary infections for people who already tested positive and then recovered could get reinfected. And now what we're hearing from virology labs in China is that it looks like the COVID-19 virus is starting to mutate so, which means that new forms of the virus may be out there and beginning to spread. Let me just say, wow. yeah. It's- uh, let, let me just ask you something about China because I, I was reading about a story today. It, it, you know, it started as rumors, but now it's picking up steam um, saying, you know, that the virus in China did not start in wet markets, but rather in labs. Yeah. How true is this story or is it rumors or... Well, here's what we know. Here's what we know. Number one, it hasn't been proven. But in 2018, a group from the WHO and from the United States visited a lab in Wuhan, China, that works on uh, virus research. And when they were when they went there, the researchers who were assessing this lab in Wuhan, China, had some concerns in 2018. And what they wanted to do is send back an educational team to go back to this lab and say, your hygiene techniques, your research techniques, your quarantine techniques need to be stepped up significantly because you run the risk of a spill occurring. And if a spill occurs, it could have a devastating impact. So we know that that is something that happened in 2018. What we don't know is whether or not for sure, I mean, it's a possibility, but we don't know yet for sure with any kind of, um, you know, kind of weight of scientific backing, whether or not the the corona, uh, the novel coronavirus COVID-19 actually came from this lab or not. It's worth investigating. I mean, it it's, it you know, the... Uh, you know, investigating the WHO, investigating China is fine. I don't have any problem with that because we always need room for improvement. My problem with what Donald Trump is doing is that he's doing the Israeli uh, technique, Jamal, of collective punishment. So it's blaming the victim. It's blaming the WHO. It's uh, collectively punishing the world population in order to kind of um, have a political gain because Donald Trump is sinking in terms of being confronted with the reality that he acted too late, number one, a month late, and number two, 
To this day, Jamal, as of the date of our show today, he continues not to have a coordinated federal response, which is slowing down people's ability to kind of recover from this. And he wants to reopen the economy by May 1st. I just want to let our listeners know that in one of the states where they had relaxed, um, they didn't have quarantine, which is South Dakota, They there was a pork processing plant in South Dakota, Jamal, that had the largest outbreak of COVID-19 infections. Right. 300 out of 500 employees, and it looks like all of them now have tested positive, or close to all of them, have tested positive for the COVID-19. Because the the governor of that state is kind of a, uh, he's she's a Trump, uh, uh, a Trump supporter, obviously, believed that it wasn't going to affect South Dakota. Well, here's breaking news. All of those states that uh, didn't institute a, a shelter in place or a self-quarantine procedure, they've all got infections. They've all got deaths. They're going to be lagging weeks, if not months, behind the rest of the country in terms of what's going on. So they're, the new normal, Jamal, I, I just want our listeners to know this is really important what I'm going to say. Self-quarantining is good. Wearing a mask is good. Washing your hands is good. Social distancing is good. But the only thing that's going to make us go back to some kind of normalcy is going to be a vaccine. And it's going to be most Americans and most people of the world are going to have to be vaccinated. That's going to be the only true and best and most effective way to get over this. Otherwise, People are going to go back to their, quote, normal lives, and we're going to go through another wave of infection. We're going to go through another well, wave seems, of sickness. I mean, I mean, it seems this is, the, this is the road that we are heading to, listening to Donald Trump and listening to actually other uh, countries, including right. Spain, that, uh, that started uh, loosening the restrictions on people going out. So, so if we don't have the vaccine now, Jess, and uh, a month from now, we start loosening the restrictions, what's going to happen? Well, here's what's going to happen. We're going to have the potential for another mass exposure and another even more catastrophic uh, pandemic uh, consequence because people who thought they were safe are going to go out there, even if they have masks, they're going to get infected, they're going to come home, They're gonna, and the people that they live with are going to think everything's fine, they're going to get infected. So... I understand that people are suffering horrifically economically, but instead of giving people a check for $1,200 and then sending them back to work, my feeling is pay people salaries for the foreseeable future rather than give them a $1,200 check. Well, actually, most people uh, have not received their $1,200 check and won't see that check for several months because Donald Trump insists on putting his signature on the damn check. So that's going to delay the process. You right. Know. Right. For several months for for the people who needed the most, because most the people who needed the most don't have direct deposits into their accounts. Right. But I, I want our listeners to know you should still self-quarantine. You should still wash your hands. You should still wear a mask if you go out. But unless large numbers of people get vaccinated, we will never go back to the way things were before. The governor of California, Governor Newsom, is saying, okay. Well, maybe we can relax some things, but you'll go to a restaurant and the the waiter will be wearing a, a mask and gloves. You'll be wearing a mask and there'll be social distancing in a restaurant. The, the mayor 
of uh, Los Angeles, Jamal uh, Garcetti said, well, maybe we can have sports, but there'll be no one in the stadium. You can have people who can go to, who can watch it on TV. Maybe the ball players, whether it's baseball, football, or basketball can play, but you won't have people in the stands. Universities, Jamal, are talking about having no in-person classes until 2021. So well, I know that. Well, I know that for a fact because now San Francisco State University, where I teach, has uh, requested for people and encouraged, uh, I mean, uh, uh, teachers to submit uh, online. Uh, yes. Syllabi. So we're not. We're not. What I'm trying to say to our to our listeners, Jamal, is that. Um, we're not, we're not as close as Donald Trump says by any extent. Getting even parts of the country back by May 1st before there's a vaccine, before we've seen the peak. We haven't gotten to the peak, uh, in my opinion, in some places maybe, but not in all places. And until, I mean, this is the take-home message. Things will not go back to normal ever, in my opinion. But they will never go back to even remotely normal until large numbers of people get the vaccine. A reasonable vaccine is not even going to be available. A safe, effective vaccine is not even going to be available, Jamal, for a year. So you do the math. Will some people be able to go back to some kind of work? Probably. Will we be able to go back to the way things were before? Absolutely not. That's just, that's a fool's errand, Jamal. And we run the risk of further extending the catastrophic impact of this pandemic and this COVID-19 uh, unleashing itself for a second wave of infection, which I'm very concerned about. Well, what about like, at least let's see if there are there is some uh, light at the end of the tunnel uh, about some positive news, uh, things, uh, experimental uh, viral drugs, and the they're talking about uh, the plasma treatment. Yeah, that's right. So the... Uh, so here, here, those are not cures. So the antiretrovirals and the plasma treatments. So what the antiretroviral does, the Gilead drug, Rosemavir, which has been shown when it's given to people, it stops the majority of the COVID-19 virus from self-replicating. It's the self-replicating of the virus that causes so much damage. So this doesn't cure it, but it slows down, it looks like, or stops the replication of the virus to much more manageable levels where people can recover. Uh, that's the good news. The bad news, it doesn't do that for everybody. The plasma treatment is you take a person who's been exposed to the virus. Uh, they recovered. They developed the antibodies. You extract the plasma from the person who's recovered from the corona uh, infection, you take his his or her blood and plasma. It has antibodies in it that are looked uh, that are believed to be very effective. You inject that in someone else, and that helps that person's immune system develop the antibodies and develop immune response to help them get over the corona infection. It's worked in a couple of limited settings, Jamal, but it's the same thing. It doesn't work for everybody. So these are uh, treatments that can treat some of the symptoms, but it is not a cure. I want to keep emphasizing that. The only true 
way we're going to overcome this is with a solid vaccine that reaches a critical mass of people so that we can um, stem the spread of the virus over time. And do we know that this is going to be, I mean, do we have a timeline for this? 12 months, we, 12 months to 18 months. I mean, that's the same, the same timeline we've been hearing about for now the there, past few weeks. There's no way you can make it go faster. And just and why is that? Why is that? I don't understand. I mean, well, if the, the way the scientific method works, Jamal, is that you have to take large numbers of people who are not in, who, who don't have symptoms who have not been infected, you give them the vaccine, they get infected, and then you see how they respond to it. And then you have- So it's not, so it's not the bureaucracy factor, no, you know, like it's the just approvals the, by the FDA no, and all no. these things that take a long time. Because you, you have to do the double blind study. You have to give some people vaccine, some people don't get the vaccine. Because the only thing we have uh, to help us get through this is science and medicine. And if you don't believe in science and you you make decisions based on your gut, which I know Donald Trump likes to do, you're going to make stupid, ill-informed, unscientific decisions. Well, uh, Donald Trump was saying, oh, this is something this is something like the flu, it's going to disappear on its own by April. He's delusional. He, he's delusional. And all and and, and I'm I'm sorry to say this, any religious leader who believes that God is going to save them from the coronavirus is also delusional. Of course, we hope that God would do that. But at this point, uh, God is not inter intervening, Jamal. Uh, people who are going to these religious services with Easter and, you know, Ramadan is coming up uh, next week. Um, people need to shelter in place and they need to still practice these things. Actually, we I see that we're running out of time, Jamal. Boy, we we really we, we really talk about we get through a lot of material here on Arab Talk, of course. Yeah, that's right. And I want to talk briefly about the Arab American community. I've been trying to gather some information about what's going on. I know in the Detroit area, your hometown just that they have been setting up uh, you know some organizations to kind of reach out to the uh, uh, the Arab American community and make sure um, um, and the help the helping the state to uh, you know to send some people or to send yeah. some literature yeah. at least in in Arabic to the new immigrants. Yes, uh, and and also the um, religious leaders, uh, both Christians and Muslims, have been very uh, forceful at telling people to stay at home. They're not going to celebrate Easter in in you know in churches. Some of them were holding Easter masses on uh, Zoom, uh, and also now with Ramadan coming, as you know, Ramadan is not a one-day holiday. It's a thirty-day, and then there is a holiday followed by a holiday. So you're talking about a thirty, almost thirty-five days of family gatherings and extravaganza, and that's a major yeah and people of and it's going to be to... and it's going to be on zoom this year jamal it has to be you're going to yes. have to do tarawih you're going to have to hear khutbas you're going to have to do all that stuff on zoom and and stay protected but you know we're going to continue to follow all of this jamal our commitment to our listeners and our viewers even though we're still continuing to self-quarantine we're going to continue to do arab talk on a on a weekly basis 
We encourage our listeners to reach out to us. You can you can tweet us, uh, Arab Talk Radio on Twitter. You can go to our website, ArabTalkRadio.com. You can you can watch us live on Jamal's uh, Facebook page, Jamal Dejani too. So we we are committed to our viewers and our listeners, Jamal, and we're going to continue to follow this uh, until the foreseeable future. That's right, Jess. You've been listening to Arab Talk Radio on KPOO San Francisco, and we also ask you to support KPOO. Uh, that's keep it's keeping basically our show on the air and many other shows. And uh, in these uh, very difficult times, uh, go to KPOO's website and see how you can support them in any which way that you can. And we will talk to you next week. We'll see you next week. Mm-hmm.